0: Hello and welcome to the Six Figure Developer Podcast podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Callaway.
1: I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Jesse Liberty. Jesse is a principal developer specializing in web and mobile and has been programming in C Sharp for 20 years. He is a Microsoft MVP, a Xamarin MVP, an author, and he creates online courses for Pluralsight, LinkedIn Learning, Udemy, and Pact. He is the author of 18 books the latest of which is Git for programmers. Welcome, Jesse.
2: Well, hello. Thank you for the kind introduction. Very, very pleased to be on the other side of the mic this time.
3: Yeah, for sure. So before we kind of uh, jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a, a little bit more introduction to yourself, you know, and perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry?
2: Oh, good grief. Uh, well, I tried programming in high school, which was uh, literally in machine language, machine code, not even assembly, and uh, I didn't like it. And then I tried it again in college, and I truly hated it. And uh, then I was in social work school, and they had a CPM machine, and I loved it because that was mine. and I didn't have to share it and have to you know you you know the drill. So I did some tooling around in that and Turbo Pascal and so on. And then uh, I had a friend who taught me C and the way he taught me was to say, well, first go learn assembly, which was interesting, (laughs) which I did. And he was right. That made C a lot easier. Certainly pointers were a lot easier. Um, And then I had a friend who uh, had a thriving programming consulting business and needed to go off to California to take over the family business and hand him you all his clients, which was great. Um, so that was in C. Uh, went to Ziff Davis to build um, Interchange, which is a uh, project you've never heard of, and I'll tell you a quick story about that. Uh, but there I learned C++, and that's when I was contacted by Sam's about do you want to write a book. And so I ended up writing a book for them and a bunch of other people. But anyway, so that, uh, that, that brings us up into the 80s. In 2000, I was given the early bits of C Sharp and said, I'm not going back and you can't make me and have been doing uh, web programming with uh, ASP.NET until about four years ago when I started doing some Xamarin programming. And now I am uh, actively looking for work, probably in the web space, um, have been refreshing. Boy, a lot changes in four years. Um, so I've been refreshing on Entity Framework and ASP.NET Core and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that brings us up to the current state, I believe. 25 years in three minutes.
3: Wow, that's a lot. Uh, so, what, what are you working on these days? What's like a typical day for you?
2: Well, at the moment, a typical day is going through um, all, all the email I'm getting about possible jobs and writing back to people, and, and for about half of them saying, I'm sorry, I'm not taking contract work. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, then you know, there's a few leads. Um, when I'm not doing that, I'm uh, brushing up on, as I said, Entity Framework, ASP.NET Core, refreshing myself on TypeScript. A lot of this stuff is fairly easy because I'd written about it before or made videos about it, but I just need to really solidify. Um, you'd be amazed how many companies now ask for tech tests, which in the past I would have just said no. <laughs> but but these days it's ubiquitous. So, I, uh, so I'm taking these silly tech tests.
0: Yeah, and you said um, in, in your bio, it says you're an author of 18 books and the newest of which is Git for programmers. So what has been the progression of your your authoring of so many tech books and, 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 and why a, a book on Git these days?
2: Well, the progression has been that I started, as I said, it, on C++ and, and my premise for the C++ book was at the time, all of the C++ books assumed you knew C and they were transition books from C to C++. So I saw a market for people who did not know C and that was where my book came in it was a teach yourself c++ in 21 days which everybody objected to you can't learn it in 21 days and i said why don't you just call it c++ in 21 chapters and not aggravate yourself um so so uh that book did surprisingly well and so we did more teach yourself and then um i can't remember the order but i got seduced over to uh rocks for a while and then uh o'reilly um and and uh you know, as you progress through the quality of the publishers, the books get better, the editors are, are more serious, and it takes a real long time. So, And book uh, profits have been plummeting since the advent of the web. Um, and now I remember the story. I was going to tell you very briefly. I was, when I was working for AT&T, we were building a product called Interchange, which was an online publishing platform. And I was at Demo 94. I will not forget showing this to a guy in the next booth. Uh, you know, here's our publishing platform and it does multitasking on windows 3.1, and it has this really cool thing called hyperlinks. And the guy next to me said, ha, huh, let me show you this. This is called mosaic. This is, you know, our new worldwide web. And I went to my boss and said, we're dead. <laughs> and we surely were because, <laughs> uh, free beats good every time. Um, and you know, the web got better, but at the moment, at that time, it was pretty primitive, but it was free. Um, so that's uh, I think that's the progression. The question you ask is why a Git book now, and that's a really important and good question because according to Stack Overflow, some ninety some odd percent of programmers use Git, and uh, it is it it's not only the most popular it's it's virtually ubiquitous. But my experience is that t- most developers know how to check out a branch make some changes, merge it back in, and God help them if they have a conflict. Um, so we thought we'd put together a book that starts out at the beginning of what's version control but very quickly moves to how do you use this, how does it fit together, and what are some of the more advanced things you can do and how do you get yourself out of trouble. I made a point of not talking very much about the innards of, of Git and you know how it manipulates commits and trees and i just threw all that out and said that's that's just not important to developers what's important is to most developers what's important is getting their work done getting their work done with git uh so that was the premise and uh, the book is fairly short and uh i i like short books um I, you know, I don't like books with a lot of fluff, and I, and I particularly, my personal taste is, I don't like books that dive into detail that I don't need. So I tend to write the the eighty percent of the language that you use ninety percent of the time, and uh, that's sort of my premise on on this book as well.
3: So before we kind of uh, get too far, could we jump back a little bit? And I know that you mentioned that. A vast majority of developers are using Git, but we still have a lot of new listeners and people who, who maybe are brand new to development. C- could we talk a little bit about what Git is and what, you know, why, you want, why do you want to use it?
2: Well, let's, let's talk briefly about version control. When I started programming, if I was worried that something would go wrong in the next thing I was going to do, I'd back up my entire directory and then I'd make my change and then if something went wrong i'd go to my copy version control says let me do that for you much faster and i'll take care of each of those versions in fact it won't be when you stop and say oh i need to have a backup it'll be you know something that is you can integrate into your development because it's so fast that's the essence of version control there was a time where before git where version control was handled by a central repository. Um, there were a number of different version control systems. Git came along and it had a couple tremendous advantages. It's, it was written, first of all, by um, the man who wrote Linux. It was written for his own use and then for the Linux community and eventually for everybody. Um, so it comes from, you know, genius starting right there. Um, it's decentralized. So every uh, in theory, everybody on your team has an ultimately exact copy of everybody else's repository so it's very easy if if somebody's repository goes away to fix that but the big thing with git is that branching is really cheap by which i mean uh well let's talk about what a branch is typically what you have is what's called the main branch the 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 when we were talking about having those backup copies that's the main branch but you don't Write code to the main branch. What you do is you write a feature branch. You say, "Okay, I'm now going to implement feature one," and you you take that off of the main branch. You do your work, and if it goes to hell, you can get rid of it without affecting the main branch. And and you don't you don't want to affect the main branch because that's where you're going to do your production work from and where you're going to release from. And if you mess that up, people get annoyed and they come hurt you. So you want to do that on a feature branch. Um, uh, get makes taking those branches very fast and merging them back in very fast and so when you have that kind of speed it's very inexpensive mentally time wise in so many ways to to work on a branching approach which is a much safer approach so git became enormously popular now i should say there are three terms that people tend to confuse and conflate one is git which is the version control system the other is github which is probably the largest repository, the place that you can put your files in the cloud and was recently bought by Microsoft. And uh, and the third is GitHub Desktop, which is a UI based way of working with Git. And there are, I know I'm rambling, but there are two basic ways of working with Git. One is at the command line and the other is in some kind of GUI. And there are many different GUI tools. Some of them are quite simple and easy to use, like GitHub Desktop. Some of them are quite uh, complex but more powerful, like Tortoise. Um, there's Fork. There's, there's just a number of them, and and it depends on how much help you want and how restricted you're willing to be. At the command line, you can do anything Git can do, but you can also shoot yourself in the foot. So that's kind of the trade-off that you make.
0: Yeah, and you had mentioned kind of the the brief history of source control or version control. Um, before hitting record, we were talking about your, your 20 plus years of experience, my 20 years of experience. And, you know, source control isn't necessarily a new thing. It was as simple as copying a folder structure somewhere else. Uh, we had different ver- different version control systems. We had subversion. We had uh, TFVC. We had you know, all sorts of other mechanisms to keep our source control safe. Why do you suppose that these days Git is synonymous with source control? Why do you suppose that so many developers rely so heavily on Git as their source control repository?
2: Yeah, I, I'm going to make a guess at that. I don't have any scientific evidence but my guess is that a it's very fast and people responded to that and b it's where all the cool kids went and so that it built up a certain amount of um of of momentum and and has really taken over the uh the source and there are things i mean i don't want to i don't want to disparage there are things that are just much better in get or much easier or much faster than there were in things like svn um and and the uh, the um, distributed aspect of it makes it much safer as well.
0: Okay, yeah, and, and and let's be honest. I know enough Git to to do my daily chores, to do my daily work. Uh, I know how to clone a repository. I know how to branch. I know how to check out, commit, pull, and push. But if the if I run into any issues, if I need to. Um, Revert, or if I need to merge, I'm going to rely pretty heavily on some kind of external tool. You, you mentioned uh, GitHub Desktop or, or some kind of GUI mechanism. Uh, Visual Studio has a couple of really nice tools to help through merging processes and uh, going out to the web, googling for how do I revert the last commit and, and those types of things. What, what are the what are the more um, maybe not day-to-day commands that people should be familiar with? Or what are the, the ones that we, we need to use on a weekly basis, perhaps?
2: Well, let me, let me. If you, I will answer, but let me just back up for a second. And I don't mean to push my book, but but the approach that I decided to take, because there are those differences, is to show almost everything I was going to show at the command line, and then in GitHub Desktop, and then in Visual Studio. And Visual Studio's, um, pardon the expression, commitment, to get uh, has been extraordinary. And part, you know, once they bought GitHub, their incentive was also very high. And so visual studio 2019 has a uh, very powerful support for Git. And I anticipate because so far I don't know, which is great. Let's me say this, that, uh, 2022 will have, uh, uh, even more intense support for Git. Um, so, so, I don't think anyone should hesitate to use a good GUI. It can make life a whole lot easier. Um, I think you asked me what one should know that goes beyond the commands that you named. And uh the, the first thing that comes to mind is rebase. Now, when you say rebase, lots of programmers go running from the room in tears, uh, and that, uh, Rebase has gotten a reputation as being difficult to do and easy to mess up your, your repository. And in fact, if you're the slightest bit careful, Rebase is extremely useful and not difficult to understand and quite safe. So the essence of Rebase says, uh, well, let's back up. When you merge, what you're doing is you're taking your, uh, your branch and merging it into another branch, so let's say on the day-to-day, before I'm ready to merge back to the main branch, I like to merge my main branch into my feature branch so I don't fall too far behind on the main branch. Every time you do that merge, it shows up in your merge history as, a, as another commit. And that's a lot of noise in your merge history. Rebase solves that problem, essentially. Um, and the way that it does that is it, it takes, uh, this is a very visual concept, but I'll try to put it into words. It takes, let's say you're rebasing from main onto your feature and notice merge into rebase onto. And the reason for that distinction is that when you rebase, you, you take, and let's say we're rebasing mer, uh, main onto uh, your feature, you take main and you make, You don't have to do it. It does it for you. You just give it one command and it takes a copy of everything in main and reassembles it onto your branch. And so you end up with a, uh, usually represented as a totem pole, you end up with a a direct path that does not leave anything of main out. That's the key thing that that you're not going to drop. Even if you branched off and main continued on, when you do the rebase, you get all of that into your branch. So you don't you don't lose anything from other people's development. And um, uh, it does it does have a scary reputation. I'm really not sure why, because once you're comfortable using it and that takes about 10 minutes, um, no, you know, nothing should go wrong. But then there's open the pod bay doors. Hal, so I don't. Really want to guarantee you that, but I've become much more comfortable with rebase. There's a there's another command, interactive rebase, which we should certainly talk about. Interactive rebase has virtually nothing to do with rebase, um, at least from a from a programmer's point of view. Uh, you know, from it, from the guy who built Git, maybe it does, but but it's essentially something completely different. And what interactive rebase lets you do is, and you do interactive rebase, and for that matter, rebasing only on the client. Let me emphasize that a whole lot, that if you're going to rebase, you're doing it on the client. Once you're ready to go into pushing that up to the server and merging into the into the main branch, then you're going to use a merge. And anything you're going to do on the server, you're going to use a merge, not, not a rebase, because you can truly foul up other people's. That's probably why people are scared of it, because if you rebase on the server, you can cabbage somebody else's code And then, as I say, they'll find you and hurt you. So you want to avoid that. Um, Interactive rebase says, here are all my commits. And and if we're talking to somebody who hasn't done um, a lot of Git, then a lot of what I'm saying is going to get confusing because we're not really, I think, tonight, want to start at the very beginning and work our way up to where I think most of your listeners are so they know what a commit is. So let's say you have four, five, six commits locally you know, you're committing frequently, you're doing some work in committing, you're doing some work in committing, you're not necessarily waiting for the end of a discrete uh, piece of work. What Interactive Rebase lets you do is to squash some of those commits together and say, here are three commits, but they're really one thing, squash them into one commit. And then here are two more and squash them and then change the, uh, the, the message that I associated with these commits. And it, it allows you to manipulate all that before you push it up onto the server.
1: That way, every commit message isn't WIP.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly right. If you, um, if you work with me, and the commit that actually makes it into the, into the repository, the main repository is work in progress, I will come in, comb your hair. <laughs> <laughs> commit messages are really important because they tell you what the developer was trying to do and what stage he or she was at. They are the equivalent of good comments in, in coding. Um, you, don't, you don't need to tell me what's obvious, but you probably want to tell me what you have accomplished. And there's an interesting um, ethos that has grown up around commit messages, which is that they should be in the imperative. So it's not, I added something that makes this work. It's add something that makes this work. Um, I don't know why that became the uh, standard, but, but it has. Um, and your messages can be fairly long, but typically people make Short messages that tell you what they've done, and and uh, makes it very easy to go through the history of commits and and see how things progressed and who and who made what changes.
3: So I uh, really agreed with you uh, on your assessment of using rebase, rebase and and to completely agree. But what I want to sort of bring up was a little bit of a devil's advocate. Uh, question here and and maybe kind of dig a little a little bit you kind of touched a little bit of of it but um what i hear most people sort of the immediate response is like aren't you rewriting the history right um when you're doing rebase and then they're very scared and and i think um the other concern is or the other sort of hiccup that people run into is if you've pushed a, a you know um your feature branch to say origin and then you do a rebase on say master. Now you can't just push your branch to origin. You have to do a force push because you have to sort of overwrite what is out there. Um, and there, there's some angst about doing that, I think. Sure.
2: Absolutely. Well, first of all, let me say that you are rewriting history. You're rewriting. Absolutely. And, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're doing it locally, if you're doing it on your branch, that's a good thing because you, you get a a cleaner history. Um, And the whole idea of, well, I copied it and then I moved it over. Well, you didn't do anything. Git did it for you and it did it right. So you don't have to worry about that. What you're talking about where people do run into trouble is when they rebase on, they rebase the main branch, the, um, and then they push to origin and, and then do a, uh, they want to do another rebase and you're right. You get into forced pushes because otherwise you start looping around in circles and, burst into tears and 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 henny youngman showing my age used to talk about he went to the doctor and he said doctor it hurts when i do this and the doctor said don't do that that's sort of how i feel about uh you know rebasing on on the server don't do that so well so
1: with um with like um commits and stuff uh because you know like the work in progress and all that stuff i i think the reason why that happens is because people end up in a situation where they've been working for three days, they've got 150 files checked out or, or modified, and they go to commit and they're like, ah, uh, I changed a bunch of stuff. Commit. Um, so the, the mantra is usually commit early, commit often. But how early is the correct amount of early and how often is the correct amount of often?
2: People really disagree about this. And and there are different workflows. The way I work is I commit very frequently one trigger for me is if i lost it now would i cry and and then i need to commit um, have i completed some discrete piece of work i need to commit but i don't wait for that i mean i'll i'll commit sometimes every half hour sometimes every hour um, i try not to go much further than that because if you do 6 hours work and you lose it it's 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 painful to recreate that work it's i find that it's much harder to redo something than to do it Um, because it's just, you're just too frustrated and aggravated to, you know, and you have to walk away and take a break. Um, So that's my style is commit early, commit often, just as you said. There are others who believe that you should only commit when you finished a discrete piece of work so that you don't have all these garbage commits. And for me, the answer to that is commit often and then use interactive rebase to squash those down and only show the important ones. And then you don't have work in progress and you don't have a lot of cruft in your history but you do have all those commits while you're working in case something goes wrong
0: yeah I think that's going to have to be my mode of operation going forward I, I think I'm going to have to work that way because uh, one of the teams that I've been working with um, I, I was squashing on the server when when merging into you know merging a pull request uh, which Caused some additional issues because they had written some additional downstream workflows and things that, that depended on depended on a, uh, a, an additional merge commit. uh, So that didn't get fired off. Um, But there's also, I think we started kind of touching on like, not only how often do we commit, but how much of a scope of work do we commit and, and, submit a pull request and and maybe this is getting a little outside the the realm of specific to get but more of uh, how do software development teams work and how do how do developers work because uh, one meme i saw on on uh, maybe twitter or something that was if you if a developer submits a pr that that includes 10 line changes you're going to get 10 different comments if you if you submit a pull request that includes 400 file changes, you're going to get
2: looks good. Yeah, That's right. Right. That's brilliant. I like that. Um, yeah. Finding that balance of, well, you have to ask yourself first, why are you doing a pull request? What, what do you want that the people who are reviewing your pull request, do you want a sanity check or do you want them to actually read the code and see what you've changed and make comments on that? And That's going to depend on the culture of the place you're working, your level of experience. It's going to depend on a lot of different factors of how much you put into a particular pull request. And for people who are fairly new to this, the idea is that when you want to merge from your feature branch to the main branch, you can't just do that. What you do instead is you create a pull request, which puts up a a, a temporary block on that merge until somebody else or some two other people, however you have set up, approve of that merge, and then it goes through. That's what a pull request is. Um, And uh, I've worked at places where it was one person had to approve, places where it's two. There are trade-offs because of how quickly you can or cannot get things in Um, and what percentage of the overall team's time is being spent on reviewing pull requests. And I think a lot of that has to do with the experience of the person who's generating the code and how tight the team lead likes to keep look at that code and so on and so forth. Um, You can, it's not the end of the world. If you merge something and you break everything, you can roll back. Um, It's not a pleasant thing to do, uh, but you can. And uh, you can even roll back. And then, so let's say one of you uh, uh, does a merge and it breaks everything. So we roll back that merge, but then another of you says, well, wait a minute, I, I put something in that I really need in there. And there's a thing called cherry picking where you can take certain commits out of one branch and drop them into another. So there's a, there's a lot of flexibility there once you're comfortable with some of the more relatively advanced parts of Git. But, you know, I think, I have to look, but I think my book is like 250 pages or so. And we get all the way up to bisect and, and how to get out of trouble. And, and, you know, it's, it's, as much as there are additional commands that people might want to know, there aren't that many, and and uh, and some of them I don't bother with because they're so obscure and used so f- infrequently that you know that's why God invented Google.
0: Yeah, I think the the, the biggest one I, I go to is maybe get revert head hard or something like that. <laughs> like just throw it all away, whatever.
2: I, I um one of the things that people tend to do is that they uh, reset their local changes, because they, they feel like they've gone down a path and they wish they hadn't. And and if you've really gone down a path and, and it's really clearly broken and you're ready to start over, you can do that. But another thing that you can do is you can stash, which says, take everything that I've done recently that's in you know current and put it over here, give it a name, I might need some of this later. And, and I find that a very valuable alternative. One place where you absolutely want to use the stash is you're working in a feature and somebody comes up and says, stop what you're doing. I need you to work on this other thing, this bug right now. Well, when you go to check out the what's in, in main, it's going to tell you you can't because you have all these files that you haven't checked in, but you're not ready to check them in because they're going to break the build. So instead you stash them. And then you go do whatever you had to do, come back, unstash them, that can't be the right word, and uh, pull them out of the stash and uh, continue on with what you were doing. So one of the things I point out in the book is that there are essentially four places in Git. One is the workspace. The second is your local repository. The third is your remote repository. And the fourth is your stash. The one that people, I think, have the hardest time getting their heads around, even though they know it intellectually, but it just doesn't fire right it took me forever is that when you check something out into your working uh, directory that replaces everything that visual studio is looking at all those files are now replaced which is kind of a scary thought and then when you you know you, you check that and you check something else out everything again is rewritten in 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 your you only have one copy of your software at any given moment and and it sort of takes a while to get comfortable with that idea but but that also avoids a million problems
1: yeah i use um i use stash as like the uh the ultimate spiking tool cuz i'll be like this code is terrible i'm going to refactor it and then i go refactor and i'm like oh that's why it was written that way i haven't done it in a little while but it's like uh you can put it in the stash and then you can just delete whatever's in the stash so i'll just do that real quick instead of doing a revert or whatever cuz i can never remember the the command for that
2: the one I always have to go back and look up is uh, do I merge from to or to from? And uh, this, this goes back to the old CPM days because CPM is before DOS. And when I learned CPM, it was copy to from. Well, DOS is copy from to. And I lost a lot of files that way. <laughs> the, way the
1: way I remember it for Git is you can't modify the branch you're not in. So I get out of master. And then I and then I merge. That way, I can't I can't break master.
2: <laughs> One thing that makes this much easier to do and to remember is to use Visual Studio because it won't, because it's very explicit. It'll say quite clearly you're on this branch and you're merging into that branch, and and it, and it's very explicit what's going on. If you do it at the command line, you need I need to look it up every time. So the way I work is I I do. 60% of my Git in Visual Studio and the other 40% of the command line, depending on is it something simple and I'm just going to type it into the command line or is it something Visual Studio can't do? And I have to say, so far I haven't found anything that Visual Studio can't do. So so I, the amount of that I'm using Visual Studio instead of the command line is growing.
3: Yeah, this, this, this is one of the things that I really love about Git and the ecosystem around Git uh, is I sort of, you know, tell juniors like you you got to learn also to like just be fluent to be able to use git wherever in whatever tooling you're working on me whether you've if you got the solution pulled up in in visual studio use the tools that are right there um don't go have it go hunt down a command line just to be able to make your thing you know if you're if you got a visual studio code boom just use use what's what's available there uh if you've got a window pulled up of your latest gui you know use use that because that's right there and and sort of learn to be fluent and all these things and um i that that that's the thing i i love that the fact that i can swap between um different environments and never lose a beat um because it the integration is so good
2: One of the uh, things that I included was a chapter on what to do if things go wrong. And um, it turns out to not be a very big chapter because there are certain things that people run into and and they're fairly easy to get out of. But there aren't that many. And then there are, I guess, a couple problems that no book could really tell you. You need somebody who's been working with Git for 10 years to get you out of. but, But you have to work hard to get into that kind of trouble.
1: I think it's uh it's pretty easy. It's uh git push origin space colon master right
2: D- dash f. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, I did that on Unix once. I I said uh, I said rm and I wanted to say star dot star, but I said star dot space star. That's a bad thing. And then I hit recursive. That was that was a bad thing. Remraf slash. <laughs> okay, we are truly gigging out.
1: Now. <laughs> <laughs> Is there, um, is there anything else that you can think of off the top of your head that, um, would be important for, uh, someone to, to know about Git or, or maybe if they're, if they're a Git user, but something for them to, um, to investigate a little bit further, take that next step to, to get better at it?
2: Yes. Uh, let me answer your first question first, which is the answer is don't panic. Uh, almost anything that goes wrong can be fixed. Uh, you have to work really hard to do something that can't be fixed and um, often you can fix it yourself if you take a step away and then come back. So that's that's one thing. The second is things to learn that you might not know. There are a few commands that a lot of people don't know and would save them a lot of work. Um, the biggest one that I can think of is bisect. And what with, what happens with bisect is you you've made 20 commits, and discover that something's broken, but you don't know when it broke. And so the way bisect works is you turn bisect on, there's a command for that, and then you say, here's a commit that I know works, and here's a commit that I know is broken. And it will essentially do a uh, binary search, you know, so it'll, it'll show you a, 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 it'll switch to a commit and let you test that. And if you say that's still broken, it'll switch to the next, you know, and it's doing that. By cutting things in half. And so very, very quickly, you can identify which commit made the break. Uh, there's, there's a, so that's extremely useful and, and fairly obscure. There's another extremely poorly named command, which is blame. Um, and <laughs> should never have been called that. And what blame lets you do is you can look at a commit and see every single line of change and who made that change and when. And that can be very useful for finding out, uh, what was intended and how you're going to fix it. Um, more ha- more accurately, how the person who broke it's gonna fix it is going to fix it. If you're on a good team, it blame is not the right word for that. Um, because it's, you know, bugs happen. Um, I used to work for somebody who said, save time and don't put the bugs in. But <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, so we've certainly mentioned your book, uh, Get for Programmers. Are there any other resources that you might direct people to who are trying to pick up
2: Git? Yes, absolutely. If you are the type who like um, technical documentation and in detail, and and you're comfortable with that level of detail, then the Git documentation, which is online, you get to it simply by putting in a command and, and, and into Google, and it'll come up, is excellent i find it's also overwhelming um and so i go a little bit further down the list that google gave me and i find you know dotnet pearls or whoever has has a good example of of uh how to do what you're trying to do or how to fix what you're trying to fix there's, there's a lot on the net the only reason to buy a book i would argue is to get it in a guided path you know through if what you need is to understand some small part why would you buy a book? And you, you can go to the net. And, and, and that's partly why programming books aren't doing as well as they used to. But if, if what you want is to see things in a coherent order, then, you know, books can be helpful. And there are a lot of good books out there. Um, and they come in various sizes from something relatively small, like mine, which is, you know, to the point and not much else, to much larger books that give you much. The other question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to know how Git does what Git does? And if you do, then you're going to end up with much bigger books that explain it in detail. And that, you know, for some people, that's the way they work. They want to understand what's happening under the covers. For many of the rest of us, it's how do I get my work done? And you, what you do is just magic and I don't care. Um, I tried to find a balance where the internals are magic. But, but what Git is actually doing, I do care because then I need to know how to fix it if it goes wrong. But I don't need to know about the, the trees and the blobs and, you know, all the internal pieces of Git because I'm not writing a Git uh, UI. So the Internet is your friend is what I'm trying to <laughs>
1: um, So this might be a similar answer, but uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or maybe those looking to level up their own careers?
2: Well, I got very lucky. I came into uh, uh, programming just as the PC was coming out. And so the amount you needed to learn was infinitesimally smaller than than no, that's the wrong word. It was much smaller than what you need to know now. Um walking in right now, it is so much to learn and so overwhelming that the first thing you need to do is to narrow your vision into what specific things you need to learn. Um and learning yet is a good a good thing along the way, although it's almost certainly not the primary thing you're going to learn. Um For me, as the complexity grew, I was able to follow along because I got there early. Um, It's much harder, I think, today, Uh, which is why when I was programming in the 2000s, a lot of us did not have CS degrees. In fact, we used to say some of the best programmers don't have CS degrees. It's not true anymore. People are coming out with CS degrees know a whole lot more. The languages that they're learning are much more modern, and they're managing the complexity because they've had it presented in an in a ordered way. So what was your question? <laughs> Leveling up.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, something that you found in your career that that's, uh, would be good for people getting started or people uh, trying to uh, level up or accelerate their careers uh, might want to know.
2: Right. I, I use four, a 4 prong strategy. I get a job where I know how to do it, but I make sure that there are parts I don't know how to do so that there's some growth there and growth potential, and that is on a collaborative team. And then the third piece is um, I use a mix of books and videos because I, I learn differently from books than I do from videos, and sometimes one helps where the other didn't. Um, and then the fifth is to get good at Googling, although that's getting easier and easier as time goes by. You can You can really just put in a straightforward question and you'll get the answer. It's just magical.
1: I do wish more people understood that you can just how Google, how can I has get knowledge and it'll just show up. Uh, how can I has for loop? Yeah. Still explaining that to family members <laughs> and other people.
2: Um, <laughs> you know, you don't want a developer who, who every single thing he does or she does has to be looked up on Google. But on the other hand, I, I have no embarrassment about, Google being a, an essential tool in my, in my uh, programming because the brain can only hold so much. Google can hold a whole lot more. And I want to be focusing on the abstractions and what I'm trying to build and not so much syntax.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In the 90s, it felt like you could know everything. And now you, you can't even know the the cool new library that everybody's using.
2: You can't even know what you don't know.
1: <laughs> right?
3: Google, how can I has what I don't know? (laughs) So where can our listeners go to follow you and uh, keep up up with what you're working on?
2: Sure. Um, I have a website that has a blog that I write to intermittently with no cadence whatsoever. And that's at uh, jesseliberty.com, J-E-S-S-E, liberty.com. I also have a podcast, which you can find at jesseliberty.com slash podcast. And that's also intermittent with no cadence, but I've had some wonderful luck with the people who've been on it. And uh, that has helped me a lot. And uh, it's a good way to track things. I'm on Twitter at, at Jesse Liberty. You can see the pattern here. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn at LinkedIn in Jesse Liberty. So I'm you know I'm usually pretty easy to find because I, I have an unusual name. So it's, it's one that I can usually get um, on any particular social media. I don't use Facebook prof- for professional things. I use Facebook for a small group of friends. I use Twitter. F- I used to use Twitter exclusively professionally, and and you would never have heard a word about politics out of my mouth until the previous president, and then I sort of broke that rule. But uh, mostly, I try to stay uh, professional. The other thing that's happening with me personally is that I have an unpublished novel that I am just finishing, and so some of my Twitter uh, stuff is about that. And about, uh, there's a, just very briefly, there's a thing called Pit Mad, where you have 280 characters to pitch your book. And uh, so I'm participating in that. That's on September 2nd. So that sort of fills up a little bit of my feed as well. And and, and people who want to reach me directly, um, especially if they have a job, but even not, uh, my email is Liberty at gmail.com. Um, people seem to be afraid to give out their email, and I'm not really sure why. It's very easy to hit delete. And most, I find that ninety nine point nine percent of the of the mail I get from other programmers is is you know great. It's it's uh, I'm learning something or they're learning something or both, and it and it's not hostile ninety nine percent of the time. So I have no fear of giving out my email. Now my phone number, eh, not so much.
1: Don't worry, the scammers already have it.
2: Yeah, that's right. Anybody who wants to do anything bad with it, have it. All right, Jesse, this has been really great. Really appreciate you
0: taking the time to speak with us. I know that my copy of your latest book is on its way, uh, so I'm very much looking forward to that. Hopefully there'll be great things to come and uh, the, the next 18, 19 books are, are certainly on their way.
2: Huh. Well, thank you. This has been a blast. You guys are a lot of fun. And, and what, what your listeners can't tell is that we can see each other which is great through Zoom. So I can see you nodding or shaking your head or making faces. And and that's that's great. I'm going to start using Zoom when I do my uh, podcast. So thank you is what I mean.
0: That was Jesse Liberty. Jesse is a principal developer specializing in web and mobile and has been programming in C Sharp for 20 years. He's a Microsoft MVP, a Xamarin MVP, an author, and he creates online courses for Pluralsight, LinkedIn Learning, Udemy, and Pact. He's the author of 18 books, the latest of which is Git for programmers.
1: If you like this episode, please
3: like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev.
0: This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm Sean Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.